You're listening to Crime Scene Today, where we talk about current issues facing law enforcement, crime scene, and forensic investigations. I'm your host, Dan Zintek. Today, I have Brandon Epstein join me, a forensic video uh, examiner. So we're going to talk about that and all the different things that, that go with it. So, uh, Brandon, I appreciate you joining us today. Thank now, you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I know that you're certified in many things, but uh, through the IAI, were you at the IAI this year? Did you get to go? I was, uh, me, and I took the family down for a nice trip to Nashville. Yeah. Uh, had a great time. I'd be uh, happy to see everybody in person. It's, it seems like few and far between we get a chance to, to do that, but I had a great great time in uh, Nashville this year. That, that was the most common comment that I got. Uh, and, yeah. and, and I don't know what that says. Cause I mean, we had some like amazing, uh, you know, sessions and, and everything. And it's like, Hey, what'd you think was great? I liked seeing everybody. So really <laughs> we didn't need to educate anybody. We could just had a big barbecue and party. And I think everybody would have been just as happy, but, uh, there, yeah. there were a lot of, of great presenters and everything there too. Um, the hotel was huge. I, I was telling people, yes. I'd, I mean, from, from walking from the front to the back, my watch would kick in and say, your workout has started or detected workout. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just amazing. That was my first time there. You've been to Nashville before? Uh, I've been to Nashville. I've been to the hotel before, actually. And uh, I still did no better navigating from point A to point B. Uh, it, it, it was an experience every time you left the room trying to find someplace. Now, you said you're there. Did you do the, they had a big, they have like a water park. Did they go check that out? Uh, we did not. Uh, my wife and my daughter is uh, just turned seven, but they went to uh, some ropes course down the street. And then, okay. uh, she's a big, my daughter's a big country music fan, so we did Lower Broadway for during the day. Uh, nice. At like 11 o'clock one morning, listened to some country music and came back to the hotel. We did not do the water park. Okay. I did hear that that was a, a good time, though, from other people. I, I didn't I didn't check it out either, but uh, yeah, there, there were other people that, that got to go check it out and stuff. So uh, you have been doing... Uh, obviously law enforcement stuff for a while, but, uh, obviously you've taken on a specialty of doing mm -hmm. forensic investigations. Uh, yeah. and it, it seems that a focus onto the video side, I'm gathering that you do forensics all over a computer and everything. Um, but yes. so, so how'd that sort of lead from there to, to you doing video forensics? And I mean, just, I guess to a point, explain what are we talking about? What, what exactly is video mm -hmm. forensics? So uh, my path to video forensics is pretty much, a, it's a non-traditional one, I would say, uh, as opposed to a lot of my other colleagues that started out in other forms of digital forensics. Uh, it, mine started, I can tell you the exact date. It was uh, February 15th, 2014. At, at that time, I was a uh, major crime detective at a municipal police agency in central New Jersey. I remember it was a Saturday morning. I was in a dentist chair getting a filling uh, fixed from earlier that week that was still had some pain. And uh, my boss had called me and said that, that there was a uh, homicide that happened to be, uh, you know, it was a small city that we're in, uh, but it happened to be, you know, maybe four or five blocks away from where the, the dentist I was at. And he asked if I could come into work. I said, sure. Uh, and as the junior guy in the unit, uh, we started to acquire video evidence. Now, this is back in 2014. Uh, we were ill prepared to deal with the volume of evidence in this homicide. And this particular homicide, it included over 400 hours of video evidence from over a dozen locations. And, and all that kind of responsibility fell to me for the extraction acquisition of that. And, and I really, you know, I, I learned as I went, I did the best uh, at the time with the tools I was given. But throughout that investigation and after, I went to my bosses and said, hey, there's gotta be a better way. Trial and, by and fire is not the best yeah, way. Right. Yeah, there's gotta be a better way. 
I, I guess I annoyed him enough because at a, a certain point there, I, okay, figure out what that better way is. Uh, so I started to um, look for some software and some training and I went down this, this rabbit hole and, you know, fast forward seven years, a few hundred hours of training and, you know, a master's degree later, uh, I'm a true believer in the power of uh, video evidence in criminal investigations. You know, and that's right. I was going to, I was going to mention that too, because obviously that's a unique master's degree. You have it in like forensics and what is it like media and such like that? Uh, is it Colorado? Yeah. Yeah, so the University of Colorado is, uh, has the uh, National Center for Media Forensics. Um, it was started from a DARPA grant. Uh, I should probably know the name, the, the, the year that it was started, I should say. But it, uh, it, it graduates as a graduate program that's a, a master's degree in recording arts emphasis media forensics. So it's entirely about video forensics, audio forensics, and there's some cell phone and computer forensics as well. Uh, that's uh, the only program I know about in the United States. Now, to go back to, to your beginning, so, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I was uh, in homicide myself, too, so, and, and there's so many things that you're doing when you're working a homicide, and it has been, and you said that was 2014, but, uh, yes. so, uh, and I was working it from, from 06 until 16, and uh, the amount of video that's now coming in uh, on any case, on so many cases uh, that we work now, but especially in homicide, uh, that it, it's it was overwhelming there, and I can't imagine now. And and one of the questions I have for you, and related to forensics, is we have it coming in from um, convenience stores and from a cell phone. Hopefully, a cell phone witness. That would be awesome, but very very rarely do we get that one. Uh, but we have it for now, ring cameras and all these different things. So. Um, what are you, what is, I guess the initial step in sorting through all these different types of, of video? Cause they're not all the same, right? Yeah. I mean, they are very different and I could see the migration over the past years of just the exponential growth in video evidence, um, in terms of that black box DVR that's in somebody's house or their restaurant or their convenience store. Um, and the transition now to a lot of the cloud-based recording, like you said, they have a lot of Ring, Nest, Arlo systems that are just uh, the, the volume of data and the volume of evidence is uh, is incredible. And even before review, I think investigators are presented with unique challenges of just acquisition, extracting this information, whether it be from that black box DVR to obtain that information to, you know, before even achieving playback or from a third party service provider like Ring, like Nest, uh, or um, some of the lesser known, no, no brand name companies to even get their hands on this digital evidence. Uh, and then the, the challenge just starts to achieve playback. Um, fortunately, most of the cloud providers are pretty easy, but that's still to this day, you know, back from when I first started really handling video evidence in 2013, 2014, to this day today, uh, playback is, is an issue seven yeah, years so, later. So, so one of the first terms you will ever learn when collecting video evidence is codex. Right. So, yes. so, so why don't you explain what a codex is and why we hate them so much? No, what, what it is. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a pretty popular misnomer. Everybody hates the term codec and they've seen, you know, improper codec. Uh, and hopefully I can clear this up uh, as succinctly as possible here. Uh, in terms of, I have a specific DVR system, a proprietary DVR. When I say proprietary means a specific manufacturer builds 
a digital video recording, Brandon's DVR. Right. And I want to make that my own. I want to make that my own brand. Uh, to do so, I have to do have two things. I need to uh, ingest video. The whole point of this is I have a camera. The video comes to my recording system, and I start recording it. And to do that, I want to record as much video as possible for as long as possible. I can't take this raw video that's coming in because the file sizes would be huge. I'd fill my whole drive within a matter right. of hours with my hard drive. So what happens is the video undergoes something a process called compression. So in that process, among other things that are going on, the video size becomes smaller. And that is at the cost of video quality. So when you start looking at some of the, um, the, the video from DVR systems, you might think, wow, this is really poor video. Because last night you had Monday Night Football or, or um, Sunday Football. And what happens is uh, you're used to watching this high definition 4K, you know, football game or you know your television right. show and in fact that we're really dealing with only a fraction of that data because we're trying to record so much of it on our hard drive now that compression uh is, is a specific mathematical formula so for the lack of a better term it's a codec it's an algorithm that compresses this data and to make it smaller uh, be recorded for a longer length of time it also allows it, so you have codec, which is coder on the first end that, that makes the recording. And the, the DEC, the last part uh, of that is decoder. So you have coder decoder. In the same way that we um, fold up or, or we pack or we uh, make these files smaller, we have to use the same codec to unpack these files to make them larger and viewable for playback. So back to Brandon's DVR, I need two things. I need a codec, I need a way to make my file smaller on my drive or, or on my DVR. And I also need a file system, uh, much like uh, you're used to dealing with your Windows or your Mac operating system, and you have a file structure, or you have your C drive and your documents, and you have your whatever documents are in there. I need a file system or a file format within that system to record. So in my documents folder i have to have a document that has the doc doc the document um extension for let's say a microsoft word document or a pdf uh, now that file format that i have in my dvr system is what is really proprietary to me so i can make the um abc format where a lot of times you'll see them in, in uh dvrs is the dot dat dot dat data um format or it could be any file extension that be, you know that can be created. Um, that is the true proprietary nature of it because in fact, we can have a codec in a proprietary wrapper that file extension and uh, most tools like Windows Media Player and, and a lot of things that are using for playback won't play that back. The fact is the actual codec, what is compressing and decompressing and making the file smaller achieving playback because it is so complex, my Brandon, in his quest to turn a profit, uh, is not going to employ the highest level programmer to program a brand new codec. Right. It's expensive. It doesn't work. Um, and, and it takes a lot of time and effort. Instead, most of the DVRs leverage the same codec, and that same codec is open source and free. And I just create this file that is proprietary to me. So if we use tools that see path that file, or could read that proprietary file, we could then achieve playback. 
without using the proprietary players that come along with Brandon's DVR. So now when you're talking about <clears throat> compression, uh, obviously, you know, I know in speaking for the photography world, there's lossless compression, there's lossy compression. Mm -hmm. And so uh, by nature, when we're doing this Kodak and, and compressing this, uh, generally is stuff thrown out? Is there, you know, basically, do you have the, the true video? Is it, is it there? What are we looking at? Absolutely. It's, in, it's entirely a lossy compression for people up in the photography world. That, that is the we will never get back. And a lot of times investigators, um, you know, and the public, they expect to see these pristine images. And they don't understand that there are artifacts of this compression. Uh, and when we start looking at things like, let's say, use of force incidents, um, and not fully understanding what happens in the process of compression and what is replaced in this data and what we can and cannot trust um, in our video files, we can let down a path uh, that may not be the most accurate interpretation of, of this media. And that's where someone like me or another forensic video analyst would come in. So now when, uh, and obviously, you know, uh, and we certainly experience it with the public when they, uh, the CSI effect, right? We, we get it with video, we get it with photos. It's like, yeah, can't you just zoom into that plate that's three pixels large and, and tell us the numbers they saw it last night, right? Uh, no different than photos is with video. But one uh, forensic part that I heard about, and you can probably explain, is if somehow, and how often uh, this is possible, that we're able to get the raw the raw video and and it's been referred to as dropped frames uh, and those things. Um, I know what's uh, the normal frame rate out of these cameras is, is what? So what you're watching on television is roughly 30 frames per second in the US. The normal frame rate on a actual DVR CCTV security camera could be anywhere from 30 frames down to one frame a second. Uh, most range between 15 to 30 frames per second. At 12 to 15 frames, you get a, a pretty fluid motion. That isn't always the case. They'll, they'll range anywhere from uh, almost one frame a second through 30 frames per second. So I know it's been brought up in some of the training and reference to, and usually it's in, in use of force, right? Officer-involved shootings and things like that where, where we're talking about uh, time frames and whether they had hands up, saw a weapon, didn't see a weapon, and, and going back and trying to to pick what they, again, I've heard it is dropped frames. So what, what exactly is that process? So dropped frames uh, is where a DVR or recording device, let's say a body-worn camera, is responsible for capturing, let's say, 30 frames per second instead. It takes a new image, or it has to encode imagery uh, one frame every 0 0.03 seconds. When we get to a lot of movement and some high resolution and there's a lot going on in the, the, the video frame, a lot of newer body-worn cameras do a good job with this, but there's still an opportunity that I cannot write as fast as the information that's coming in. When I say write, I mean store to any kind of storage media, whether it's okay. a hard disk or, or storage within a camera. And when I, the camera becomes overwhelmed and there's too much data that it can't write at that 30 frames a second, but you know, each one, one thirtieth of a second apart. We have the um, possibility of dropping a frame. It'll just skip one frame because it starts to see that it's lagging behind. So it'll skip that frame and not record that uh, and then move on to the next one. Uh, of equal concern to me, and it's funny, this is a conversation that we had at length today. Um, uh, it, 
just so the, our talk today coincides with the meeting of the, the scientific working group on digital evidence we need. Um, and we're working on adjudicating some comments uh, related to a timing, uh, a paper that, that revolves entirely around this concept of interpreting uh, the time that has elapsed between frames of video files. Yeah. Because it gets more complex than even drop frames. Uh, because there is something that occurs in just, it, I would say, I'm not going to say every single kind of camera, but the vast majority of cameras, which is a variable frame rate. Well, so, you're still dealing with a computer, right? So you have mm -hmm. buffer, you have processing speeds, you have, uh, does any of that play a factor in, in the, the, I guess, the how fast it's able to do its thing? It, it, it absolutely does. Um, the, the, so... When we say that even if we have a 30 frame per second video, uh, we find that not every frame is 1/30th of a second apart. You could have a frame that two frames that are actually um, much closer together in time, and other frames that are much uh, farther away. When I say much, this is all relative. But a lot of times, when this comes into play, is when we start calculating speed from recorded video, or the use of force incidents, asking how long after this gun was fired was did this happen yeah. right. um, and, and this is where you know because there's such serious questions with such great consequences to the question we're trying to answer uh, the accuracy of this is, is paramount and the difference between you know taking it down to the hundredth of a second you know 0 0.0204 seconds uh, could be all the difference between innocence or guilt liability uh, you know correct actions or, or something that wasn't uh, and that's why we see that people that just take for granted that at face value, because a lot of people that have looked at this video take for granted, we think that everything is recorded at 1 30th of a second at 30 frames per second. And in actuality, uh, the chances are much better that two frames of video are not exactly 1 30th of a second apart. Well, and I think that, you know, you said it, what, what we're used to seeing, and I think our brains interpret that we're used to, and, and more importantly, uh, we've come from now a society that, you know, uh, originally it used to be, if it was a photo, it was true. Right. And, yeah. and once Photoshop and people became, okay, we we're moving heads, we're moving everything else. But I think still in the video world, even though obviously we know cinema, we know all the major things they can do there, but I think it's very much, it's on video. That's, that's what happened. Right. Yeah. And, and not determining what angle it was from, what type of camera it was from, but I mean, it's, if you saw it, that that's it. And I know, I certainly know you've been to class the same as I have that they show you a video and then they show you the other angle, right? Mm -hmm. and, and totally yeah. different story. The, uh, the best analogy, I'm, I'm gonna steal somebody else's analogy I hear about this is, you know, um, you break your arm and you go and the doctor takes an x-ray of it and you throw the x-ray up on a little uh, light board that they have and you look at it and any doctor or even any lay person can uh, um, understand that that's a broken arm. And when we come to the video, we kind of take the same thing. It's visual. I can see it. I can, you know, I understand what it is. But in the same aspect, when we go to the doctor and we have a serious illness or, or a serious diagnosis is made, we go to a specialist to read those x-rays. We did that for a reason. And when we start having video that has you know, critical events where we're talking about somebody's liberty that we can take away for possibly a very long time, that's when we start needing to really look at it with a more critical eye that has a deeper understanding of what's going on. Because the video that we're seeing from 
DVRs, ring doorbells, even cell phones or body-worn cameras is much different than the video that, you know, the layperson or even the frontline investigators used to seeing on television. Uh, the attributes are, are very, very different. So, so some advice for our investigators out there, because I, I know that um, we've run into this where, okay, someone has a ring door camera or they have uh, a security camera in the house and obviously they have the option of it coming to their phone, right? And then they get this video on this phone that you know is compressed to the smallest possible size so that they can receive this. And then they email that to detectives, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming that there is a larger file, a bigger file, something. Uh, tell me as far as you're, you're instructing investigators, like how do I get the real thing? Like what I need? Yeah. It's funny you mention Ring specifically because that's the one platform that we have uh, done the, the most extensive uh, research into. And, and I can give a spoiler alert here that, um, that it's essentially the same what's being stored on Ring servers as opposed to what the uh, what the, the email we're getting the email is getting. Uh, yeah. So, there's, there's so, many so it's horrible. It's horrible. That's what we're going to go to. It's a horrible video. Uh, we are not sponsored by Ring in any way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, Ring, Ring's, I mean, it's a great camera, but uh, I mean, we can, we can talk about the technical aspects of wide angle lenses and streaming video for hours. I don't think anybody wants to listen to this. Right. The, right. Um, uh, but you do make a good point, though, is that without that, and this is what I, what I talk about, I talk to a lot of forensic examiners and investigators when we start talking about understanding um, stuff like, like Ring Video. We don't have the research to say, well, Ring, we were starting to, we don't have the research to say, you know, that the servers from our service provider have, have or don't have better video files. Uh, once we get the research, uh, I think it's twofold. Number one, we know that the provider is holding a much better quality video file, so that might be better for us to understand. Or we could say that we know that this email, um, Email copy, or in this case of Ring, there's a different way from a user uh, dashboard to obtain the same copy that is on Ring servers. We don't need to serve legal process on Ring. We don't need to take the time uh, on our end to go ahead and, and write paper on it. And we also don't need to burden the private companies with providing us responses to it. If we can show that all we're getting from the, uh, the user account is the same thing. So it's a double-edged sword. But right now, the, the, the current best practice, and I would say, say a lot of it is, you've got to go to the service provider for your best bet at higher quality video. Now, do you find that they are, uh, I guess, cooperative, or do we need search warrants, subpoenas? How are they, how are they handling law enforcement? Uh, my experience running is tremendously law enforcement friendly. My direct experience when you're dealing with the cases. You're asking for assistance in research. They are the exact opposite. But sure. when it comes time to your cases, uh, the um, they are they are very very uh, helpful um, to law enforcement, uh, as are most most providers. So now, you mentioned as far as you know meeting earlier, and uh, I know that a lot of the scientific working groups all turned into now OSEC, right? And and all the different advising committees on that. So. So in, in talking about this, and obviously you, you'd mentioned one, so what are some of the concerns, highlights? I mean, we're always trying to make forensics better, trying to fill in those holes. And, and for the main purpose, one, we want 
our science and the technique that we use to put the right people in prison. And we want to make sure that we don't uh, alter it in some way that we're hurting an innocent person, right? So obviously that, that seems to be the general, most of the conversations that we have in, in all of our disciplines. Uh, so what is, I guess, the hot topics or, or what are we trying to solve right now in, in video? So um, the scientific work group, the digital office, is still in operation. One of the few swigs that are still there. And I think that it really revolves around the pace at which technology and digital evidence is changing. Uh, the OSAC is a great concept of having this registry of documents as reference material for everybody used. In reality, Brandon's personal opinion is that it's very slow to come to fruition and working in digital evidence. And there are steps being taken. And I think the, the OSAC realizes that, um, that it's been, been a process and that there are steps being taken to help improve and, and speed that process up. But in terms of digital evidence, I think that there's a lot, um, it's a lot more fluid than some of the other more traditional forensic sciences or some of the ones that have a little deeper roots. Well, I think one of the big um, differences, uh, obviously, in dealing with that is, I mean, you know, blood stain is fluid dynamics, right? And I mean, certainly there's many conversations happening there, but in fingerprints, you know, been around for the longest out of the disciplines and such. When we're talking technology, I mean, technology that was around six months ago is changing from what it is today. Yeah. And so trying to stay on top of that at the same pace you try to stay on top of the others has got to be just a, a massive undertaking. It, and it absolutely is with every, I mean, with every app update, with every update to software, with Apple just releasing four new iPhones. Uh, becomes four new potential artifacts and four new things in need of research to identify um, how they operate to, to better examine them. Uh, and and a, as these videos, uh, I'll tell you one of the problems we've had, and I don't know if you have a better solution, but as now our evidence has grown to such size, as far as us um, packaging this, okay, where it used to fit on a DVD, and then it fit on a thumb drive. I mean, we're literally having to buy terabyte hard drives, you know, and to, to store it on and then making copies of that. And, you know, uh, just trying to get this to the DA, defense, other people. Um, any, any thought, solution, or just, hey, that's the problem now? If, I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I've had this conversation, you know, I'd buy a dinner. Yeah, it, it's... It's everywhere. I mean, where I am in New Jersey, all the way out to the West Coast, everybody struggles with this deluge of data. I think you'll see it from commercial product vendors. You'll see it by the, the amount of people that are entering into the, the data management space right now on a commercial front. Um, but yes, sharing data is, is an option. Is, I'm sorry, it is, is an obstacle uh, in digital evidence. It, it's not only how I get it to my investigators, how I turn it over to discovery, how do I manage it in the long term? Because now, I mean, it, it concerns me burning things onto Blu-ray discs that will sit on a shelf for potentially 5, 10, 15, 20 years that the data, the integrity is still there when we go pull that off. Uh, I think a lot of agencies are starting to see the value of moving to the cloud um, to give them that option, that, that security, and, and kind of pushing off the manpower that's relying on maintaining these huge servers. Uh, for agencies that do have that into a um, 
uh, kind of a SaaS platform to do so, but for me to say that there's not one solution for every agency. But I, I definitely think, and as you talk, that, that this is a topic that should be taken off by organizations like Sweepy to provide guidance on the best ways to store uh, this evidence in the short term and long term. I know the Sweepy has produced a document on data archival, but I think it's something that, that uh, needs to be more forefront in you know police administrators' minds. Well, I think one of the problems that you run into, uh, you know, we've we've dealt with uh, photo, video, just storing stuff, but it's the fact of size of agency. Like, you know, uh, I'm I work in a, a decently larger county, so you know, we've looked at uh, an online system of digital transfer between us and the DA's office. It's a multi-million-dollar project, right? Uh, yeah. And if you're a large enough county, city. Uh, that is able to do that, that's, that's awesome. But, you know, a, a large portion of police agencies throughout the U.S. are less than 20 people, and mm -hmm. their budgets really aren't that high, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that, and I understand, yeah, we have larger cities, so we have more video, but these smaller cities are still taking on, I mean, everything involves a cell phone now, right? Uh, the, the cell phone you take in, in a town of 200 is, has a seat store size, of a cell phone you take right. in the city of two million, it, it, they, they each pose the same problem, even a single device. And then they're they're storing everything on there, and yeah. and the thing is, we don't we don't get to just say, okay, we want, uh, I just need these five text messages, right? I, I just need this <laughs> off of there, right? Yeah. If you could take that, just store that. Don't worry about everything else, because that everything else is what rightfully so, the defense has a right to, right? What other thing is on there that could prove my client not guilty as much as what you picked off that was guilty, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So uh, I mean, yeah, that's a, uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of targeted acquisition and targeting for, for the reasons that you just talked about. I think you see it's different, but for the most part, yeah. We need to be storing a large amount of data on everything that we end up touching. I mean, it used to be even from the video aspect, uh, on a homicide, we'll take 10 minutes, half hour of video. Now we've learned our lesson where we might be taking the entire drive. We might take, you know, four to six hours worth. Uh, and then somebody's have to review all that, and, right. and which is an entirely different topic. Uh, aside from the disorder, the manpower takes just to review 200 hours of video evidence in a standard major crimes investigation. Yeah, I do know that. Uh, so talking about some different software solutions, uh, I know that, and I don't remember the name, if I, if I did, I, I'd tell you which one we had used. We had a case of a, um, a disabled child that uh, uh, the father uh, steadily was uh, tasing the child as some type of, I'll, we'll call it discipline. Basically, if, if she got out of her bed, if she got out of the room or whatever, he would tase her. Um, and even though she was tail, she understood what was coming because she'd start putting on more clothes and more clothes and more clothes or whatever, trying to, to help this. So anyway, there was a uh, camera in the room. So we had used one to feed all this into to try to sort better between timelines and this to sort of help versus just watching 200 hours or whatever. So what, what type of software, I guess, have you come across to, to help with sort of triaging uh, this stuff? Yeah. I mean, there's a number of players in the space, this content analytics space, uh, you have uh, Briefcam, Vintra, Sequester. Um, there's uh, 
another one that, that's um, escaping my, my mind right now. My, my my guidance to people looking to get into this this content analytics, which is, is usually it can or it can be a very expensive uh, endeavor, is trust but verify. Like anything else, they use as a tool. Um, the systems work, but they don't work as well as human eyes, especially on sub. I want to say substandard, but lower quality video. Right. Um, it, it's only the result is only as good as the quality of the video that that comes in. For you know agencies that are evaluating the software, my, my advice to them is you know the salesman will come in and rightfully so will we'll provide oh, yeah, their, their videos are awesome. Yeah, they're, yes, they're amazing. Uh, yeah, grab <laughs> grab your case from last week and, and, and throw three hours of video in and, and see what happens to it. Uh, right. Because the big difference between what happens in the, the dead of night, 200 yards away from the camera, as opposed to walk, somebody walking through a shopping mall. Right. The one that they picked for their demo that uh, they've, they've tried yeah. numerous times. Yeah. Right. So the, the cloud storage you talked about um, seems to have added a, a new layer of expertise of us working these type of cases. Uh, I know um, in storing stuff, uh, even on their phones, I mean, now uh, you have things that the, the video is, is stored in the cloud or, or whatever. So uh, again, is that is that something divisive? So I'll use like Celebrite, for example, right? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Celebrite, is that getting it off the phone with just the Celebrite? Or is, is now do you have to tie to the cloud to get this? What are, what are we doing for that? Yeah, that, that provides a whole, that, that's open another can of worms uh, that, you know, whether you're using your acquisition tool at Celebrite, Magnet, X or Y, Oxygen, uh, it's, there's a certain amount of data that resides on my actual device itself, the, the, the dead box forensics aspect of it, which we can call it. And there's some information that is accessed every time into the cloud. So it, it, much like every other answer or, or the majority answers in forensics in general, is it depends. depends. <laughs> and not just on how much overtime is available, right, uh, right. that it, it's, uh, it, it, it depends. It goes app by app, and, and you know, user settings could play a role into it as well. Um, that there are video files that are, let's say, that the possibility is is that if I could access their cloud account, I can get a better quality, or I can get an additional length video file, uh, as opposed to one possibly is viewed and be stored on my um, device itself. So it, it's there. There's a lot of variables there, and there's a lot of variables when it comes to legal authority. Have the authority to search the connected cloud accounts, right? And and that goes into um, where do you file the search warrant from, right? I mean, is is this stuff stored here because the consumer is here, or do I have to serve it on Apple, who's in California? You know, uh, those issues. That, that that is a lot of issues to explore there, and I've seen it done both ways. I've seen search warrants that. You know, just for the device and data that's only stored in the device. And I've seen other ones that says, you know, the data that's stored in the device and any connected cloud accounts and using uh, the commercial tools that will access uh, using, you know, the, uh, the the user credentials extracted out of that device will go out to Facebook, Instagram, just to name a few like social media sites and download those pages um, all from the same warrant. Another place that say, no, 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 you can't do that. So, I mean, we've been talking about sort of current things, things that we're dealing mm -hmm. with. Where, where do you see the future? I mean, not only, I guess, uh, the problems that you see being challenges to us and, and I guess maybe solutions that uh, we see coming. Well, I, I see that 
playback still being an issue. I, I see it's hard to have any kind of conversation nowadays about contemporary topics in video without mentioning the term deep fake uh, right. as a, as a, a form of an element of a crime as well as a, an avenue of defense. Uh, a lot of times when it comes to video authentication, it's almost more difficult to prove something as authentic as opposed to, you know, find sources of manipulation. Uh, I don't think we're that far behind. Like you mentioned earlier, I mean, Photoshop is, is a, a verb in Webster's dictionary. Right. Uh, that it's not going to be that far behind when we look at that for video files. Um, well, I remember, uh, and it never, it never got released, at least to the public. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the um, the audio capability that uh, Adobe had done. Yeah. Uh, they had it. It had it at Adobe Max, or it was at yes. one of the platforms, right? Yeah, it was Adobe Voco. It was a Jordan yeah. Peele uh, yeah. Um, yeah. demonstration. Mind blowing. And yeah, and that obviously, was I mean. Uh, an, Immediately, I mean, obviously, for what they showed it, it was like this could be, uh, it could be beneficial, right? It could be beneficial to uh, be able to use artists that have passed, you know, to put them in movies, to do all these different things. It could be used for uh, audio books, and there's always good, right? And with good, there's always the bad yeah. side of what it could be used for. And immediately, people are like, oh my God what you could make people say. I, I don't I don't think it took very long for people to make that jump. I no. think even while they were still giving that presentation, yeah. you I, know, people were the eye the saucers the and played. The room, like I cannot believe that this is happening. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, that, I think Jordan saw it immediately. He's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, uh, but that's with audio and I mean that uh, it, it never got released to the public. Mm -hmm. um, it got shut down pretty quickly, but Obviously, as you referenced earlier, there is a lot of open source information out there, right? Yeah. I mean, there's an open source Photoshop. There's open source things for video. Uh, mm -hmm. There are people working on these that aren't just proprietary based. And yeah, and yeah I I can see the deep fake. Um, now, sort of to go back, what is the difference when we talk? We talk about codecs. But what, what are we talking about? We're talking about MP4, H.264, uh, those type of terms. Uh, that's a really good question. In terms of, we talked about Kodak and wrapper. Um, so H.264 could, could actually be both. Um, but H.264 is the most common codec that's actually used in uh, CCTV video, in your cell phone recorded video, uh, your body cam video. Uh, and many of the camcorders that are used to the digital camcorders. And there's a couple reasons for it. The, the first reason is, is that it is effective. It, it does a good job compared to other codecs. Um, it does a good job of reducing file size and maintaining some quality. The other reason you'll find that a lot of proprietary DVR systems is that it's open source and free. So you're not paying for it uh, as a developer, as a, as a software engineer, as, as the production. Uh, as opposed to MP4, um, MOV, AVI, WMV, ASF, are all file wrappers or file containers. That's what contains uh, the codec. So my MP4 file, my MP4 container could have an H.264 video codec. And then in that same wrapper, if there's audio, it could have a different audio codec. So I have my multiple codecs in this package, in, in this container uh, of my MP4 file. So that's the kind of the inner uh, relationship between the, uh, the, 
the actual codec and container. Um, you'll see now in the future more H.265 video, and you'll see that um, in, in more than the newer cell phones. But for the most part, the vast majority of the video that we'll see in investigations is H.264. Now, what are you finding as far as um, body cams? Is it pretty much proprietary? Is this something that's being able to be played easily? Uh, the nice thing about most body-worn cameras, I mean, obviously Axon has the uh, the largest market share uh, of body-worn cameras and, and the other big players like WatchGuard um, that, you know, it's been acquired by Motorola. Uh, they, they, they're all using MP4 files. Um, unfortunately, here in New Jersey, Panasonic does not. Uh, they're headquartered here in New Jersey. Uh, I, I've voiced my disdain about their file system many times. Uh, but for the most part, the two biggest players that, that have uh, – market share do have um, the MP4 that meets a specific specification that it makes it easy not only for playback, it also makes it easier, and I'm not gonna say it's easy, but easier for examiners and analysts and ESA force examiners um, to make uh, interpretations of the video. It also allows for easier time in enhancing uh, or clarifying video that comes in that, that's in need of that as opposed to dealing with a proprietary file system that you can't have access to the original video. So on, um, I want to say a, a typical scene or crime or whatever, I mean, as you said, you had one that had tons of video from it. Um, is it slowing down cases? I mean, obviously there's a lot of more processing in, I mean, by the time that you have worked on this, and I guess the, the point is, I'm, and I understand, I mean, if we have a suspect, we're able to have enough probable cause to arrest them without this, but it's it's nearly seeming like as science advances, and maybe rightfully so, that we're waiting longer for that more solid confirmation, nearly beyond probable cause and on to beyond a reasonable doubt before we're actually making the arrest. I think it's absolutely right. It, it does delay things. And even going a step further, um, what concerns me is, is the amount of cases that are not cleared, that are not solved because video went unplayable and then something more important came in and got pushed to the side. And that, that piece of evidence, you know, in a worst case scenario, exonerating evidence sat and was not played because it was just too difficult to do so because the investigator either lacked the training or the tools that they needed to effectively play that. But yes, it, it absolutely hampers investigations. And in my opinion, it hampers it almost in an unnecessary way. I understand that all agencies and all, all, all police departments have different resources, but I feel that where we stand in you know late 2021, almost 2022, that our frontline investigators deal enough with video to either have training to use open source tools to achieve playback or commercial tools that, that do the job for them to achieve playback of, of just about any proprietary video file. Yeah, I mean, it's nearly at this point, I mean, I don't think it would ever be acceptable anymore for a police agency to say, yeah, we don't do cell phones, right? We, we, yeah. we don't adopt we those, yeah. you yeah. know. Uh, and, but it is a challenge, as you said, you have budget constraints, you have personnel constraints, and so many smaller agencies wear multiple hats. And, um, you know, from my understanding, you're, you're at a larger agency where you get to be specialized and do certain things. But if you were to do what you're supposed to do right now and be on the streets or run the property room 
and be the, you know, all the many different things, yeah. how much further that would fall down your list of getting yeah. stuff done. Right. Absolutely. And um, I think that, you know, the importance sometimes is not felt by certain administrations uh, of the amount of training and expertise that is needed. You know, uh, I tell a story not uh, about this one department, not uh, um, to talk bad. It was just, again, it's that lack of understanding, you know, but they wanted to get into computer forensics. And they're like, well, just go to Best Buy and get a computer. It's like, no, it's, I mean, we're, we're talking about a $16,000, $18,000 computer to accomplish what you want to accomplish, right? So it, it's those conversations of, of understanding. So if, if someone wants to head down that path, your advice for an agency, your advice, I mean, like you, you got it trial by fire, right? You had the pile of video yeah. in front of you and they needed someone to do it. So yeah. prior to that pile of video getting there, what advice can you give to administrator, department? What, how do they set up their program and where do they send somebody to do those things yeah. without I mean, getting a master's degree to it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, obviously, like I said, I fell down a rabbit hole. I, I drank the Kool-Aid and I'm a true believer. Uh, but um, yeah, I understand that yeah, you're going to have the, the jack of all trades. You're, you're going to have that, but it's still the prevalence of video and digital evidence at this point, I think it, it it warrants somebody to have at least some training and you to have some equipment to do so. Um, I, I think if I had to tell um, police administrator, uh, police executive, what, you know, what the basics that you, that you need, I think first off it is support and follow through to understand that it's not um, just software. You can't, and I, and I see this agencies, even small ones that want to throw money at a problem and say, okay, buy this software and, right. and that, that, that will solve all that ails us. Uh, and unfortunately, especially in video, it's not the case. There's no, um, it's a lot more interactive. It's the person using a tool um, to, to do work as opposed to, you know, putting an input, getting an output and, and looking at it in plain text. It's a lot more than that. So I will say this, that uh, there's a couple free, uh, potentially free training programs for law enforcement through either the uh, Secret Services National Computer Forensic Institute, the NCFI, right. does have does have training in a wide variety of, of digital evidence, including uh, a recently launched uh, video forensics class. Uh, FLETSI in their Georgia and Glencoe's campus does have a, a training class on the recovery of digital video that deals with playback as well. That's a great program. And um, the Law Enforcement and Emergency Services Video Association, LEVA, does offer training to law enforcement um, and private examiners uh, to uh, acquire and process video. Um, all those places I just mentioned are, are 40 hour classes. Um, and then building on that from there. Uh, and, and that is the equivalent of, you know, starting off and I like to say to, you know, teach cops to play video. Uh, right. and, and then moving on from there would get more to your forensic examination of it. There's, there's, a definite line between achieving playback and interpreting uh, complex video questions. So, uh, and so I guess what, what would be the next step? Obviously you have a person who now can, well, one of the biggest problems we had when we were first starting training people was just retrieving it. Right. I mean, yeah. we, we would send someone out just with 
with some basic knowledge just to get it off the DVR or, you know, another solution than taking the person's DVR. Cause that, that was the first solution on yeah. everything, right? We just take all their equipment, you know? Um, so, so yeah. there's, there's that, the basic lesson of how do we get it to a person like you, right? I mean, first we've got to recover it. Um, and then after you've sort of taken that 40 hour understanding, well, is there the next step or is it just sort of at that point mentoring with someone else and, and working? So that, that 40 hour, uh, that initial, all those classes, those initial 40 hours is just that is extracting, acquiring video, um, you know, from using a thumb drive and plugging it into a DVR to using more advanced tools to do so. Um, once you start moving away from there, um, Leva, what I mentioned earlier, as well as, um, the NCMF, where I did my, my grad school uh, program at, does have one-week training for uh, on, on video forensics that, that covers enhancement, uh, comparative analysis, and some other more advanced topics. Um, that they, then now you're starting to get more into the, um, the 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 forensic examiner realm. Uh, I think I probably also reminisce to uh, be remiss in not having a little self-promotion, saying that you know that. Uh, uh, organization or a company I'm part of called MedX Forensics did launch a advanced video forensics class, which would probably start that bridge that next gap in cooperation with um, the NW3C National White Collar Crime Center. Um, that is, is an option to to really get into a deeper dive into interpreting video. Yeah, and, and no, by all means, you you are a trainer. You've been doing this a long time, so uh, if. Uh, obviously, you're associated with, and I know you're a, a, a part of a training organization. So, so how do how would someone reach out? Like, if they want you training them, if they want your organization training them, how would they do that? Uh, so, our website is uh, medexforensics.com. Uh, we produce a, a video authentication and a source identification software tool that uh, basically says uh, where a video file came from in terms of transmitted video files or uh, unknown video file sources. And we do video authentication with the same tool, uh, deep fake detection. But we also do quite a bit of training. Uh, and then that is part of the training is in uh, cooperation with NW3C. So if you're on uh, NW3C's website, you'll see uh, the advanced video forensics course. Our next one, I believe, is in November in Los Angeles in person. And we're scheduling them now out into 2022. Very good. So uh, as far as your, your software, uh, does it require great training to use? Is it more of a plug and play type of thing? It, it does. It does require some training. Um, and, and I like to say like any other digital forensics tool, uh, you know, it, it is a tool. It, it helps to provide answers. It's not the answer uh, that there is interpretation that comes with results. It'll, it, you'll input a file. It'll give you results and give you information, but it's up to the person sitting in front of the computer to make the determination that this file was actually recorded on an iPhone 11 and then edited in Premiere Pro. Okay. It's not a huge jump to get there, but it does take some, some knowledge. Or this file was, was recorded on iPhone 11 and sent through WhatsApp to a Galaxy Samsung, uh, Samsung Galaxy Note 9. These yeah, are all I'd, questions that we can answer, but need, need a little bit of, uh, of knowledge on the back end. Yeah. Right. Yeah. See, I compare it to like when we first got into cell phone forensics, 
uh, you remember the black box you plugged in, you had to know what carrier it was and what <laughs> things were attached. And, and now there's like cartoon figures of, does the phone look like this? You know, yeah. plug it in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, we've come a long way on that part and, and obviously heading that way on the video part. So, yeah. uh, no, I, I look forward to uh, checking some of those things out. I know we have some people that have uh, started working in those areas. Uh, you know, we have one a friends examiner that that uh, is spread thin, right? They they do the computers and the cell phones and the GPS and and any video and whatever. Um, yeah. So uh, by all means, that's that's great information. Um, so were you were you teaching at the II? Did you teach any stuff yeah, there? Um, yeah, we had a we had a talk uh, very early one morning, um, and, and it was partially on what we talked about with. Uh, Ring doorbell and acquiring video files from the cloud. Okay. Um, and then I was there. I also sit on the uh, IAI's video certification board. So I was there. We met. Um, oh, I'm, I'm we, glad you brought that up. Yeah. So, so obviously uh, the IAI is mm -hmm. um, pretty much the certification um, organization for uh, crime scene investigation and fingerprints, blood stain, just all the different disciplines. So, uh, what does it take? So obviously, uh, it's not like you're listening to this and never dumped a video before that you would take your test, but, but if someone heads down this path, what was required to be certified as a forensic video examiner with the IA? You're going to put me on the spot here only because uh, we're in the process of updating okay. uh, the, the testing uh, process, which in my mind um, would make it much easier in some aspects and harder in others. Um, so the requirements, are, they're all on the IAI's website, and which I say right now, they will change in the very near future. So um, we'll start with this. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you should already have some training, uh, at mm -hmm. least uh, uh, probably 40, 80 hours, something like that. Uh, is there, uh, obviously, there's a test. There's always a test. Is there a practical yeah. side to the yeah. video part? Yeah. So there, there is a written test, and that, that is... Uh, it's where it'll be anywhere between 80 and 100 questions written tests, but and that's based upon specific reference material that, that you're, you're able to review prior. Um, so you know where the questions are coming from. And there is a, a practical section that you will actually analyze um, and answer questions, specific questions about um, video files. You'll perform some functions on it, such as um, possibly uh, converting from, we talked about uh, different file extensions from a, let's say, proprietary file extension to an MP4 MLB file. So take a, a video that won't play and achieve playback for it. And then there's going to be sections where it's almost like a mock, um, well, say a mock case, but you're going to be doing more practical work. Okay. Well, very good. And that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of certifications that are, that are changing. Uh, forever changing but that's why we have our committees and everything with with different opinions it's you know it's not supposed to be easy it, it's supposed to be challenging it's you are a subject matter expert at that point you are uh, putting a board certification on there that uh, you are knowledgeable in this area to speak on it so it, it's not supposed to be a, a light task uh, to begin with but uh, you know Brian, I appreciate uh, all your information, uh, all that you do. And I, I hate that I, I missed out on seeing you at uh, the II. Yeah. Well, uh, next, year. next year we will catch up there. 
Uh, and again, thank you so much for being on. And, and I want to finish with uh, you again telling uh, the website of your company so that people can track you down if they have further questions and want training or whatnot. Sure. It's uh, Medex Forensics. M uh, Medex is M-E-D-E-X Forensics.com. And I really do appreciate you having me on. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, hopefully some of the information is worthwhile to everybody that's listening. Uh, again, please reach out if you have any questions. And for those that are just starting out and uh, want to see and have, just have a, a friend in the, in the industry or have somebody to resource us, please, please let me know. Uh, as we said, I started out all alone down this road and I don't want to have anybody else have to, to shoulder that weight like I did. So if I could be of any assistance to anybody listening, please let me know. Well, Brian, thank you so much. And we will put uh, some links below uh, so you can get in touch with Brandon at, uh, at his business and also uh, possibly some of the different software thing that, that he had mentioned that uh, you can check out and all. So we appreciate you tuning in. Uh, a quick uh, notice that uh, the Association for Crime Scene Reconstruction just posted their conference. Registration is open. Uh, for February, and that is going to be in Colorado. So uh, anybody that wants to go check that out, registration is open now. So go ahead and make sure you uh, catch that and secure your hotel room while it is still cheap. So we'll see you next week.